Welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast that takes a closer look at some allegedly terrible comics and comics-related media. By analyzing what makes bad comics so bad, we hope to better understand what makes good comics so good. Broadcasting from Wisconsin, where, to celebrate the Packers, our kryptonite is both green and gold, I'm your host, Justin Zyduck. This podcast generally covers comics that are reasonably well-known, um, maybe you even want to say notorious in some cases, that's... Uh, sort of the point of the show, but today we're going to talk about a pretty obscure one, I think. Uh, it's called Superman's History Changing Mission, the lead story from 1982 Superman number 372, written by Kerry Bates, penciled by the legendary Kurt Swan, and inked by Frank Chiaramonte. Now, I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to insist that you've never heard of this story. Uh, maybe you have. Uh, that's kind of one of my pet peeves when somebody tries to pull this sort of clickbaity, you know, comic book you've never heard of, or character you've never heard of, because a lot of the time, you know, I have heard of it, you know? I mean, you didn't discover Fortress Lad, or Why I Hate Saturn, or Denny O'Neill's Run on the Question, all right, internet? Uh, but there's no particular reason for you to have heard of Superman's history-changing mission. A quick Google search turns up only a couple of mentions of it beyond, um, you know, comic indexes and eBay listings and uh, Todd Klein's lettering credits. So it's not something too many people have dedicated a lot of time to... Um, truth be told, it's maybe not even particularly exceptional as a comic book, uh, good or bad, uh, which I realize is a ringing endorsement as you're starting this episode. Uh, it is, I think, a reasonable example of a Superman comic from 40 years ago, and that's where we get into why we're talking about it on a podcast supposedly about quote-unquote bad comics. Uh, because by and large, I think Superman comics from this era are easily dismissed today. Right, like people go, oh, Silver Age Superman is great, you know, these outrageous ideas and wacky covers and Jimmy Olsen and all that stuff. Uh, the late Bronze Age comes up in conversation and people are like, yeah, maybe that's getting a little stale at this point. I mean, that's all well and good in the early 60s, but like comics have moved on. Uh, you think about what else was going on at this time at Marvel, you've got Claremont on X-Men, Burn on Fantastic Four, Miller on Daredevil. Over at DC, you have Wolfman Perez's New Teen Titans, Levitz and Giffen on Legion of Superheroes, and then in another year or so, you'd have Alan Moore on Swamp Thing and Walt Simons and Thor. You know, all daring works in the superhero genre or superhero-adjacent genre in terms of content and form. By comparison, these Superman comics from the same time can look a little immature, maybe. Uh, I'm sure people will use the word hokey or goofy, um, I think it's a pretty commonly held position in comics fandom to say that Superman needed a reboot when John Byrne came around with Man of Steel in 1986. And when I run down the plot for you, that reputation might become a little clearer. Um, I usually like to do context first and then get into the summary of the comic, but I really just think I want to dive right into the plot right away because, you know, um, I, I try not to be too obnoxious uh, about hyperbole on the show, but like, this plot will literally make your brain turn to jelly and pour out your ears. That's just going to happen. Uh, a mushroom cloud will go off inside your skull. Your eyeballs will melt. Pregnant women should not listen to this podcast, etc., etc. Let's get into it. So the basic story goes like this. There is a large sphere of antimatter zooming through the skies of Metropolis. And if there's one thing that comics or Star Trek has taught us about antimatter, it's that it's extremely dangerous stuff. And any contact with regular matter will cause a massive explosion. 
So Superman clears a path for the sphere so it doesn't hit anything. He carves a hole out of a skyscraper in its path with heat vision at one point um, and uses super breath to blow some workers out of the way. The antimatter sphere then takes off into space, but remains close enough to the Earth to be a threat. Superman detects a signal controlling the sphere and follows the source to a secluded island. The island's sole inhabitant is a middle-aged NASA astrophysicist who admits that he created and programmed the antimatter sphere to draw Superman's attention. He's initially sort of cocky, but casual about it in the way that mad scientists in comics sometimes are. He's like, welcome to my humble retreat, Superman. I was quite confident that you would use your super senses to trace my ultra-frequency control signal. And, uh, ah, I love the astonishment on your face, Superman. In fact, when Superman finds him, he is chillaxing in a wicker chair and enjoying some sort of a tall drink with a lemon wedge in it. So that, that's sort of the, <laughs> his, uh, the atmosphere there. But then the astrophysicist switches gears fairly abruptly and tells Superman a very tragic story. The previous summer, his kids were visiting him on his island laboratory, but were swept out to sea by a tidal wave. Uh, mad with grief, he lured Superman to the island so that he could demand that Superman go back in time and save his children's lives. If he doesn't, the scientist will detonate the antimatter and destroy the entire world. Superman insists history can't be changed, but our mad scientist is basically, you know, don't give me that, we're going back in time. Uh, so Superman takes him back in time to the day of the tidal wave. Superman carries the guy in a sphere, by the way, and uh, communicates to him using superventriloquism, which is my favorite of the pre-crisis Superman powers. Superman attempts to use his heat vision to drive back the tidal wave, but it has no effect. He tries to physically lift the kids out of harm's way, but his arms pass right through them. Um, Superman and the Professor are immaterial phantoms, essentially. They're, they're ghosts in time, and tragically can't save the kids or interact with anything physical in the present day, uh, proving Superman's point. Superman explains, Another irrefutable law of time travel. It's impossible for anyone, even a Superman, to coexist with himself in two different places at the same time. And to prove it, he shows where Superman just happened to be that day, um, somewhere on the other side of the world. The astrophysicist is devastated with his revelation, but it does sort of shock him back into sanity. He says that the whole antimatter sphere was a real threat, an incredible threat, but it was always a bluff and he wasn't really ever intending to detonate it. Um, he realizes that he must accept his grief. He vows to go back and disable the antimatter when they return to 1982. But when they get back, guess what? The antimatter controller has shorted out, and it's going to detonate anyway. The astrophysicist rues the terrible mistake that he's made, but Superman is thankfully able to save the day by sending the antimatter sphere forwards in time without compensating for the movement of the Earth uh, so that the antimatter can just explode in empty space harmlessly. Um, don't worry about the, that one too much. Um, there's a diagram where editor Julie Schwartz tries to explain this pseudoscientifically. It, it, it's not important. So that would seem to be the end of the story, right? Like, the scientist learns that the past can't be changed. You have to move on from your kid's death and the present. The end, right? Wrong. Because Superman then reveals that when they went back to the day of the tidal wave, he used his super senses and noticed that the kids didn't have heartbeats for some reason. And then scanning them with his x-ray vision, it showed that they were actually androids. Okay, are you, are you, are you with me? So Superman takes this up with his CIA contact, and Superman just has a CIA contact. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to trust me on that one. Uh, who reveals that the astrophysicist had been unknowingly irradiated in an accident and became a danger to his children. So the U.S. government decided to secretly swap the kids for androids so he could keep working uninterrupted. When the androids were swept out to sea, the government decided not to tell him that his kids weren't really dead 
because they thought it would be distracting from his work, I guess, because he's already grieving. But Superman decides to do something about it and invents a lightweight, anti-radioactive protective coating that allows the kids to be safely reunited with their father until Superman can find a permanent cure for the astrophysicist's condition. And this is the actual end of the story. So, uh, where to begin, right? Uh, take a moment, if you need it. A NASA scientist invents an antimatter doomsday weapon. Well, I mean, that doesn't seem like what they're probably really getting up to in the jet propulsion lab, but... You know, we can take mad scientist as a conceit of the superhero genre, I guess. But that doomsday weapon uh, exists really only as a way to get Superman to do his bidding. So, you know, maybe he's, you know, he's grieving and desperate. Um, it turns out that you can't actually change history and you have to look forward instead of back. So like, okay, if you, the story ends the here, I guess we've all learned a valuable lesson about moving on and not trying to, you know, rue the past. Uh, and then wham, android children. <laughs> These androids were... Indistinguishable from the guy's actual children, to the point that he didn't notice and he spent the whole summer with them. They presumably are a good simulation, have various biological processes, or simulations of biological processes. And the U.S. government just has this unexplained Android technology. Like, it's so important that this physicist keep working on his government projects that the government is just like, well, we'll just whip up these perfect, indistinguishable duplicates of his two children if, if we need to. You know, it would be... That seems like the expedient thing to do in this circumstance. And then when they're swept out to sea, the government just lets them think that the kids are dead because, well, I guess it would be less distracting at this point to have to go in and be like, hey, let me explain to you about these uh, robot kids that we made. And after all of that, Superman is just like, uh-huh, uh, let me see what I can do. And he immediately comes up with a stopgap solution and promises to permanently cure the scientist. Uh, the scientist who just a few hours earlier, remember, almost destroyed the entire planet um, as blackmail to get Superman to do his bidding. This is so abrupt and illogical that you might question whether this even technically constitutes a story as we, as we understand it. And folks, this is one 17-page story. 17 page, like, and one of those 17 pages is a title splash page. So this is 16 pages of story here, really. Um, and, and there's still room in this comic book for a backup with an imaginary story of Superman's grandson from the far-off future year of, let me check here, 2021. Now, the writer, Carrie Bates, is a longtime Superman writer. Um, in an interview with supermanhomepage.com, he claims... From 1967 on, I was writing one or two Superman, or Superman-related, scripts a month, and this pace continued more or less for 19 years. So this was clearly not a case of, like, who let this guy in the office, right? <laughs> uh, this guy was a guy they trusted for about a generation at the wheel of Superman comics. But what did the fans think? Clearly this is off-the-wall stuff, right? Um, I just so happen to have a later Superman comic that has letters for this story. Should we, go, uh, should we go read a few? Uh, Daryl Hold of Park Ridge, Illinois says, Superman's history-changing mission is one of the most finely crafted stories I've ever read in my 16 years as a Superman enthusiast. This issue stands out as evidence of DC's and Carrie Bates' unswerving dedication to continuity of the Superman legend. I never cease to be amazed at Carrie's ability to twist plots into a story that both refreshes and reinforces the Superman legend. Okay. Uh, Kent A. Phoenix of Indianapolis writes, Superman's history-changing mission shows why Carrie Bates is nicknamed Mr. Surprise. Dominic Romano of Agincourt, Ontario, calls Bates' script more plausible than ever before. 
Uh, case in point, Superman's history-changing mission, a far cry from some of the motiveless mad scientist cliches that have plagued comics for as long as I can remember. Carrie uses some extra thoughtfulness and gives the story a joyful ending. He does this in a clever manner. Um, Bruce Wall of Rapid City, South Dakota, says, Superman's history-changing mission was great. It had everything, including the usual share of plot twists that Carrie Bates is known for. The best part, though, was the happy ending. Another one on the plus side for Carrie Bates. Thanks for 14 years of great reading. So this is clearly not an example of like, well, you know, sure, he wrote Superman for a long time, but everybody has their off days. Nobody bats a thousand. Uh, This is drawing positive notices from contemporary readers. Now, granted, the editor can pick and choose to print whatever letters they want, of course. um, But it is worth pointing out that they do actually run a mildly negative letter in the same column, saying that the standard Adventures of Superman format is getting a little dull. Um, The point is is that this is actually being held up as a fine example of the Carrie Bates form and the Superman form in general. So what's the deal here? Were Bronze Age Superman fans just totally undiscerning readers who don't know that there's a revolution in sophistication and maturity in superhero comics going on at the same time? Uh, Actually, the aforementioned Bruce Wall points out that he's also a new Teen Titans fan, um, but that he still puts Superman at the top of his reading pile every month. So are these just... Easily entertained rubes and suckers? Uh, if so, I will gladly count myself among them. This uh, this probably will not come as a total surprise twist in this podcast, but um, I love Carrie Bates' Superman comics. In fact, I very much enjoy this specific one, Superman's history-changing mission. Um, and not in an ironic, you know, so bad it's good way, or like, I can't believe, what you know, what were they smoking? Uh... I find this genuinely and sincerely charming superhero comics. It's not of a piece with Miller Daredevil or Claremont X-Men or whatever you want to point to at this time. There's clearly different aims going on, but I think they're different aims and not one is doing something good and one is doing something bad. Um, I'll grant you it wouldn't get published today. Probably not. Um, and then also, like, if you took this to, like, a story, like, if you took this to, like, a screenwriting workshop, right? and ran it through the criteria by which people these days talk about good scripts and bad scripts, you're going to get a harsh critique about stakes and consequences and all that sort of, you know, screenwriter 101, save the cat stuff. But I think this is still a good comic, and I, you know, I would stack this up over most contemporary Superman comics. And this isn't going to turn into, like, a comics were better in the old days kind of rant. Because I don't sincerely believe that comics were, you know, quote unquote better in the old days. I just think comics were different and had different aims and different different goals. But my, my, my point is here is that on its own terms, this story has a lot to like. So what I'd like to do is go through the story and touch on the context and sort of explicate the text to, you know, maybe I won't convince you that this is a great story and a comic that you put on the shelf next to Watchmen or whatever pinnacle of the comics art form that you want to name. But I would like to try to draw out what I find so enjoyable about this comic and what I think the folks who wrote in to praise the story liked about it as well. So let's get into it. So I think the first thing that we need to get out on the table is that this is the pre-crisis Superman doing pre-crisis Superman things. This is an almost infinitely powerful Superman, a guy who can go backwards and forwards in time just by flying so fast that he cracks something called the time barrier, right? Uh, This is a turnoff for a lot of people, I know, who feel that the more powerful that Superman is, 
the less conflict and struggle and drama there seems to be, again, in that sort of screenwriting 101 kind of way. Um, if Superman can do anything, then what's the challenge, is the argument there. And Superman himself could be considered a less-than-dynamic character, you know, unfailingly moral and essentially stable and unchanging, without a whole lot of relatable internal conflict. All of this supposedly adds up to, this is not how you tell a compelling story. And this is not a modern complaint, either. This is not necessarily, oh, a more sophisticated audience is reading comics now, or, you know, a more negative slant on that, which would be that modern writers are making this more complicated than it needs to be, or modern writers are doing it wrong. I know the, the the thing about Superman being hard to tell stories about is definitely in the air at this time, you know, 1982, the 70s, the 80s. Uh, that's why about five years after this story comes out, you get John Byrne's Man of Steel and your powered down post-crisis Superman. And even about 10 years earlier, Denny O'Neill does the Sandman Superman story that tries to scale back his powers. So there's definitely a feeling that um, Superman is tough to write for. I imagine that writers finding Superman tough to write for is a contributing factor to why Carrie Bates got to do it for so long, right? Like if everybody is complaining that we need to, need to change stuff and this guy's like, no, that's fine. Need 17 pages? I I got it for you. Uh, that's a good way to hold on to a job, really. If writing for the all-powerful pre-crisis Superman bothered him at all, he didn't show it. And I feel like that comes through when you read these stories. There's not a lot of hedging about what Superman can do. It's really an embracing of this supposedly limitless Superman to tell the most surprising story you can. When you read a Carrie Bates story, you know, all bets are off. The brakes are off and you're driving off the cliff at 75 miles an hour. You've got people here who have been reading 14, 16 years, they say in the in the letters, and yet he's still Mr. Surprise after all that time. I think that sort of his approach is to treat Superman as a license to tell, you know, what would otherwise be an unbelievable story because you have a protagonist who can keep up with it. You know, I mean, like, your Batman story is limited by, like, what kind of crime or mystery can you think of and then have him solve. Superman has almost no limitations on that kind of story. He's basically a Swiss army knife of a superhero. You can put him in any wild scenario that you can think of and that Carrie Bates does think of. And he'll both function in the story and think of a way to get out of it. Superman operating at these levels would get and does get boring which I know from experience reading other Superman books of the era that aren't as good. Um, if it's just chasing down bank robbers or fighting giant robots or whatever, um, you can get away with more sort of meat and potatoes plotting on Spider-Man because you've got all the characterization and relatability. Or on Batman, if you get you know the atmosphere right, you can do a jewelry heist story. Uh, with Pre-Crisis Superman, Carrie Bates takes a more creative approach because arguably he has to. So what you get on the surface are these wacky, pure plot machines. But what ends up happening is, because there's no limits to the stories, and no limits to what Superman can do within these stories, Superman as a character ends up doing some surprising things, actually, because he can afford to, in a way. Because like if, if, you, if you think about it, if you, you break down the story, there is a way that Superman can end the story on about page five. So to reorient us with the plot, um, Superman traces the signal of this antimatter weapon to the scientists on the island, and he gets the ultimatum, take me back in time or else. Uh, Superman does take him back and shows him the past can't be changed, that for as much as we talk about pre-crisis Superman being overpowered, there are still some limits. And the scientist says, you know, I was wrong, take me back, I'll shut off the weapon. Uh, when Superman takes the scientist back, he makes this offhanded comment about how Superman has devices at the Fortress of Solitude that he could have taken the scientist to and extracted the information on how to shut down the device directly from his brain. 
Uh, it even says painlessly, so there wouldn't have been a moral dilemma here. That would have been the easiest way to get out of this situation. Um, so you can say that, like, well, this whole story was a waste of time. Why did he even bother to take him back, right? Uh, was that just to fill pages? It turns out there actually were no stakes. Uh, Superman didn't need to go back in time. But he does anyway. And this is sort of what the story and what Superman in this era is all about, I think. Because he can afford to do so, he finds the most compassionate and equitable solution. Superman would be justified in going like, no, time travel doesn't work that way, a mad scientist. I'm going to extract this information. I'm going to throw you in a jail. And you can tell your sob story to the judge. And like, you know, we've seen that story, right? And this story probably ends with a mad scientist in prison, you know, gripping the bars, going, you know, you foiled my scheme, Superman, but one day I'll get even with you. But instead, Superman shows him why it doesn't work. The scientist has completely repented for what he was going to do by the end of the story and accepts his loss. Superman doesn't give him a lecture on it. He's able to arrive at this conclusion sort of, you know, himself through Superman taking the time out of his busy schedule to run through this seemingly fruitless scenario and hold the door open for his, you know, his psychological breakthrough. So the bulk of the story is essentially Superman engages in some therapy with his guy and helps him get over his grief. There's an antimatter weapon and time travel and stuff, but like that's, you know, that's sort of the heart of it. Now, of course, the story doesn't end on that note. Um, Superman finds out that the kids, by virtue of a contrived backstory that Superman did not affect in any way and had nothing to, had nothing to do with, right, that the kids are fine anyway, and they're just, they're, just, they're just robots. Is that a bit of a cheat that you get a happy ending anyway? Is that just, like, for the kids so they're not too sad about these kids getting swept out to sea? Uh, you know, maybe. Um, no, I'm certainly not somebody who feels that every story needs to be a four-part or a six-part epic I like done in ones. I will say we probably could have gotten two parts out of this because, like, those weren't your children who died. Those were androids. That's a corker of a, of a cliffhanger, right? Um, at the very least, if we had a full 22 pages instead of 17 pages, at the speed that Carrie Bates is working at, like, five pages, you could get a lot done in that in that space. You can argue that would have been a better execution. Um, at the very least, I, I personally would have liked to see maybe the story of Clark Kent conducting the investigation, you know, and contacting NASA and getting into all that instead of, like, Superman just, like, knows a guy in Washington. Um, but, you know, the point of the story is still the same, really. If Superman ends the story on page five, like I, I've been saying, then he wouldn't have ever gone back in time to make that discovery about the kids. It's only because he took his t that time out of his day, like I said, to take the scientist through his sort of breakthrough here and trying to do something for his own good. So without making that trip, that guy would just be in jail, bitter and still thinking that his kids are gone. But even with that revelation that the kids are androids, Superman could say, like, boy, that's weird, but um, it's off to prison with you, right? And not, not follow up on that at all. And then when he finds out about the scientist's radioactive condition, but he works up a stopgap solution and promises to devote his energies to finding a permanent cure. And Superman doesn't necessarily owe him that by the rules of the story, is what I'm saying. He did just threaten to destroy the entire world out of spite, and through his own negligence or incompetence or hubris, he almost did just that. But the point of the Superman story seems to be that Superman's compassion doesn't extend to the people who just quote-unquote deserve it. This guy threatened and almost ended up actually causing global genocide, but Superman sticks by him because if it's in Superman's power to help somebody, he will do so. The script doesn't hit you over the head with this, but it's in there in the text of this very loopy and wildly illogical story. It's not even really hidden under the surface. You just have to sort of realize that you're seeing it and pull it out there. 
for me, I think having to do that little bit of work to sort of glean this about Superman's character is a lot more satisfying than a story where you have, you know, characters just sitting around pontificating in, you know, first person narrative captions. They're like, gosh, Superman is just such a compassionate dude, right? We owe him everything. Don't you kind of hate that when they have somebody tell you what an inspiration Superman is? In this story, as, you know, as surface uh, goofy that it sort of is, we actually see that. That is just the showing and not telling that that screenwriting 101 course tells you about. So I'm not going to say that every Carrie Bates Superman story holds up to this sort of textual analysis or whatever you want to call what I've just been doing. Um, I'm not even going to say that this is what a Superman story should be, even though I personally enjoy these kind of Superman stories a lot. Or that if you want something more, I'm not going to say that if you want something more grounded or character-based with more relatable stakes and consequences that, you know, you're wrong or you're asking something unreasonable. I just want to opine that, like, if there's two takeaways from this story, it's that, first, I don't think these stories should be dismissed for being absurd or having these sort of wild logic leaps. Or that they have to be appreciated only with a thick layer of ironic distance or something something like that. There's a, a wit and an ingenuity to them, I think. And I hope that I've you know tried to convey here that there can be a sort of genuinely affecting thought about you know what you could afford to do if you could do anything. And maybe what you owe to do for people going through a bad situation. Even if it could be argued that they don't, you know, quote unquote, deserve it, right? I think that's beautiful, actually. And two, if you are a high-ranking decision-maker within NASA and you're listening to this, um, I implore you, just please be honest with your top scientists about the level of radioactivity that they're experiencing following an accident and the whereabouts of their children. Um, it's a huge hassle. Superman's going to find out, and those androids are just going to end up at the bottom of the ocean anyway. So, food for thought. Before we go, just a quick update to the episode posted earlier this month about the uh, Nintendo X-Men game. My brother Zach was on it. We had a good time. We should go check it out. Um, I did end up cutting about a half hour where we talked a greater length about Star Tropics and about an unreleased Electric Light Orchestra song that rips off Paul McCartney's jet. It was kind of a diversion, I guess. You should have you been there, but you, I, I don't think that you missed anything uh, <laughs> much. But anyway, one of the things that we touched on is that there's a frustratingly obscure device in this X-Men game where to get to the last level after you've uh, beaten the others, you have to enter a confusing sequence of button combinations based on decoding in-game messages and referring to directions printed in small type on the label of the game itself. We were commenting on how this sort of feels like an attempt at player immersion. You know, that, like, that seems theoretically fun for a kid, that like there's a secret message and a code that's right in front of you the whole time, but you didn't know how to look for it. Um, the, the national treasure of X-Men games, right? Uh, well, my former co-host and still pal, Ryan McClure, wrote in to tell me that the first X-Men video game for the Sega Genesis actually had a similar trick to it. Um, I never had a Sega Genesis, um, or a Super Nintendo for that matter, um, probably a source of massive psychological insecurity that persists to this day that I wasn't able to be part of the 16-bit generation of video game consoles. But, you know, leaving that aside, um, I, so I looked it up after reading this, and it seems to bear out what Ryan told me, which is that after beating the second-to-last boss, it looks like, in the uh, Genesis X-Men game, uh, there's a message that says that you need to purge the danger room of a computer virus, and to do so you have to reset the computer. And the meaning of that isn't immediately clear. You're probably walking around in the level looking for, like, is there a switch or, or something? What you 
actually have to do is you as a you know physical person in the real world have to reset the actual Genesis console and something in the game is programmed to accept this input and that is what gets you to progress further in the game. So obviously that is that is the least intuitive game mechanic or something to make the player do um, to really to get you know to make you have the player get really far in a game almost to the end and then make them go like I have a hunch that if is not right resets my entire game like if I had a Genesis when Zach and I were kids and I was stuck at that point in the game and he told me to progress you had to reset the game naturally I would just assume he was trying to ruin my game right uh and also, apparently, you had to just sort of tap the reset button. Like, if you held it down for too long, it really would reset the game and just make you start over. So, like, clearly this is this is an awful idea for a game and, uh, you know, completely indefensible. But isn't this the strangest, isn't this the strangest thing that both the Nintendo and the Sega game had sort of a similar counterintuitive device for progressing? You'd almost think that that's the work of the same development team, but they appear to have been different licensed developers who both arrived independently at a similar idea to incorporate this fourth wall breaking interaction with the the physical game hardware. Like, hey, you know what would make this X-Men game really cool and fun is to let the player almost get to the end of a very difficult game and then make them do something that might or might not make them lose all their progress. So is it just that there was something about working on an X-Men game that makes you, you know, hate children? Or and want to mess with them, or was working on a licensed game like this some like disreputable thing, and like you know the company got their most disgruntled employees on the job as sort of a punishment, or was somebody working on the Sega game and saw the Nintendo game and was like, man, you know, it would be what was a great idea that the game did that we should carry over. Nothing about the game except for just the element where you almost make the kid lose the game. Uh, I'm very curious about whether this was a coincidence or just how these decisions were made. Um, I'm not a gamer, and like I said, I played the NES game and not the Genesis. Um, My son did just buy a retro gaming console that plays NES and Super Nintendo and Genesis games, so I could research this. Um, In addition to that, I could also get some much-needed therapy for my inferiority complex that I mentioned. Uh, but no, what I'm actually saying is, if you have any knowledge or insight as to how this happened, email me at indefensibleinc at gmail.com. I'd really like to really like to hear about that. But even if you don't know about 30-year-old games that don't work very well, um, you can still email me at indefensibleinc at gmail.com for any other podcast business, your recommendations, your comments, your what have you. Also on Twitter and Instagram at, at indefensibleinc. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, reading, and reviewing. Um, I won't make you reset your podcasting app just to progress. I'm going to be much kinder than the X-Men developers were. But until next time, I have been Justin Zyduck. Thank you for listening and have a good night.